Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. And I am Joe McCormick. And we're here for another listener mail episode. We've been doing more of these lately because we've been, we've been getting so much good listener mail. Yeah, the, the mailbag inside Carney has been very full. It's, and it's, and it's been full of really good stuff too. And, uh, I got to throw this out up front. Like we've gotten so much that there's no way that we can address it in every listener mail episode. Now, even if we do them more often, we could do them like once a week, and we wouldn't be able to to, to get there. That's right. I mean, we're hearing from people via email, blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. We're hearing yeah. people from Facebook and Twitter. We're uh, blow the mind on both of those. Some people write into us on Tumblr, where we were stuffed to blow your mind. Some Didn't people we even beam. get one on LinkedIn. We did get one on LinkedIn once. Yes. Yeah. And I don't even think we, it was just your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, somebody, everybody go follow (laughs) Robert on LinkedIn. (laughs) But yeah, somebody wrote us there. So yeah, uh, thanks for everybody who's written in and, uh, you know, just these are the ones that we felt would make the, like the most compelling, uh, listener mail episode, but there's lots of other stuff out there and I'm going to make an effort to try to sit down and respond to all of them. I need to take a day and just go through everyone. Yeah, it kind of depends on what day they come in, but we get a lot of great stuff for sure. Anyway, the takeaway is uh, if you sent us an email and we don't get a chance to read it today, please don't take that as a slight against totally. you. We've just got way more than we can get to. Uh, but we really do appreciate all of your correspondence. And yeah. Carney does, too, because Carney is just oh, bulging with happy energy. Whoa, I see a lot of energy around him. There's like a... a- a rainbow field of luminescence. No, you know what that is? Earlier this week, I set Carney to uh, try to solve the P versus NP oh, problem. No. And I think this morning he might have actually found a solution. He hasn't He hasn't given us the solution yet. Maybe he judged that it's not for our minds to know. Uh, but he has been glowing with a radiant light and emitting mm-hmm. choirs of angels. The sound, you know, is just coming out from inside him. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's been kind of warm and happy sitting in his presence. Yeah, I'm basking in the glow of Carney. Well, if if Carney has not evolved um, too far beyond our understanding, uh, perhaps he slash she slash it can uh, present us with some listener mail. All right. So this first message is from our listener, Nicole, and it's with reference to the episode Robert and I did on the intelligence of birds. Nicole says, hi, I just finished listening to your episode on avian intelligence, and it brought to mind an experience I had as a teenager. We had some problem crows that were attacking our postman and ripping the shingles off our roof to pitch them onto the lawn. My dad heard that if you kill a crow and hang it from a tree... It will drive the other crows off. So he shot one with a pellet gun and hung it from a tree in our backyard. I, I've heard this as well. Not that I've never, I haven't shot one, but I've heard this. Okay. Yeah. She continues. The next morning, I looked out the window to see hundreds and hundreds of crows sitting in the Whoa. trees encircling our backyard like a black wall. They were making no noise and staring at the body of the dead crow hanging from the tree. 
They stayed the entire day, barely moving, never making a sound. I don't know if crows typically hold awake or if my dad happened to have shot their grand chief, but the experience was chillingly terrifying. Love your podcast, Nicole. Huh. That that is the most disturbing piece of listener mail I have ever read. <laughs> that's like uh, uh, the dark half. Do you remember that? Stephen oh King's yeah, the dark half. I remember and the, reading that. What was it? Was it sparrows? And yeah, the sparrows are flying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They. they they were like psychopomps. They were like uh, embedded with the energy of of malice or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they'll come yeah. and drag you away. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I do kind of wonder about her question there. Was there something special about this crow yeah. or was it was it just, I don't Did know. Did you guys come across anything even, even remotely like this in the episode? I mean, crows do have a startlingly complex social intelligence. Yeah. They have social relationships and they, they seem to display theory of mind where they can imagine the intentions of other entities. So maybe they were like fronting to her dad. They were like, oh, you want to kill one of us? And then just like swarmed and we're like, this is our gang. I don't know. Well, yeah, you can't the, kill us all. The crow more so <laughs> than most birds, I believe there's the, the possibility for something like that to be taking place. Yeah. Wow. Even their that is abilities. creepy though. Huh? Yeah. So thanks for sharing, Nicole. That is very weird. All right. This next one is from Isha, I believe. Uh, and she says, hello, I love the podcast and love the episode on Jeff the Killer. That's the uh, Creepypasta 2 episode we did. Uh, I'm not trying to nitpick, but when you guys were talking about acid burning, one of you said it is more prevalent in countries where it is, quote, more acceptable in society. I'm from Pakistan, and I would like to assure you that acid burning is not socially acceptable there. It is a crime, and perpetrators are punished. Saying it is acceptable in society simply because the rate of occurrence is high is the same as saying that gun violence is acceptable in America's society for the same reason. I have attached an article detailing the legal repercussions of committing the crime of attacking someone with acid in Pakistan. Once again, I love the podcast and apologize if it was a little harsh. I don't, I don't think that's a little harsh at all. Yeah, that seems uh, like a and, fair correction. And actually, when I first read this, I was like, oh, geez, I, I really hope I didn't imply something like that. I think what we were trying to get across was just that there are societies where it's culturally prevalent. Yes. So the the exact quote in that bit in in, in that episode was uh, there have been a couple of incidents where there have been Western tourists in foreign countries where this is more acceptable. And um you know to the um to the listener's point, yeah, acceptable is maybe not the right word here. Should have just said prevalent, I guess. Prevalent, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, I mean, that's a spur of the moment thing that, and that's my bad. But I would say, like, to her, uh, analogy here, like, I think you could make the, uh, the statement that gun violence in American society is prevalent. Yeah, I, I think that there is, there is a strong, uh, comparison to be made here where gun yeah. violence is not something that is at all, ex- I mean, Particularly the kind of like mass shooting thing that right. we've been dealing with. Yeah. Certainly, nobody is out there saying this is good, this is great, this is happening. But it's happening with enough of of, of a frequency that it exists in the uh, in like the public mindset. And if one's yeah. <laughs> to get sl- you know slightly poetic here, I guess if one's heart were to go to a dark place, then that experience, that mode of behavior, is waiting for them there. Yeah, as yeah. an American. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I think it's the use of the word acceptable maybe that caused the confusion. And that's certainly not what I was implying. Yeah. But that's a good clarification. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Misha. And thank you for letting us know. 
All right. Well, you know, uh, Joe and I did an episode on uh, tip of the tongue or tots. So we and we asked everyone out there to share their tots, and we received a lot of good uh, feedback. So here's one from Ashley. It says, hey, guys, just finished up your tip of the tongue episode, and I thought I might have some insight into a couple of topics that you brought up. First, I am fluent in both English and ASL, American Sign Language. I found that this is a most helpful skill in resolving tots in my world. Not only is ASL far more uh, primitive of a language than English, whose uh, discrepancy uh, aids me in thinking of words by their definition and not just their uses, but since ASL is a physical language and English verbal, I often have the pieces in one side when I don't on the other. Translating the discovery into the desired language becomes easy at that point. This is an interesting point because we talked in the episode about how I was surprised to find that there is such a, a similarity between looking for the word in English and or any language in a spoken language and then this also this thing known as the tip of the fingers phenomenon in deaf signers uh, uh, where mm-hmm. they have the same experience they're looking for the sign yeah. and they have the semantic meaning of the word but they can't remember what you do with your hands so I wasn't on this episode but it reminds me of, of when we did the cyborg episode recently we were mm-hmm. talking about how one of the guys who coined the word cyborg was very interested in the ways that uh cyborgs could process language differently to the point that he was trying to come up with a way to come up with averages of words. Like he was thinking about words as math. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a bit of a connection here. And at the time I said, you know, this reminds me of structuralism and post-structuralism. This seems to be as often happens on stuff to blow your mind. One of those uh, topics that we circle around, maybe we should do something about it in the future. Although oh man, post-structuralism would be a (laughs) real uh, tough topic to Mm -hmm. try to, uh, uh, spell out in a, like an hour long podcast. It would be a challenge, but hey, we're all about a, a good challenge. Uh, but anyway, Ashley does continue. Yes, she says, I also produce, uh, write the words the anchors say at my local news station. You mentioned during the podcast some of the differences between speech and written. Uh, producing is a fun exercise in both realms. Not only must the words make sense to the viewer who listens, but also to the anchor who reads the words I assemble. Anyways, thanks for keeping my mind entertained as I drive about town, Ashley. So Ashley is the the shadow figure behind the news echo borg. <laughs> this is kind of like how you and I are the shadow figures behind brain stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan Strickland is our little puppet. Uh-huh. Yeah, most people have only seen him from the front, but from the behind from looking at him from behind it's just like uh, the flesh opens up and there right. are these rods. They've never seen yeah. the armhole. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I kid, Jonathan Strickland is full of wonderful insights on his own. And rods and gears. Okay, also a couple of quick messages we got back about the tip of the tongue episode. Uh, Listener Sophia writes in, good morning, gentlemen. Love, love, love the podcast. You're too kind. Uh, she says, seeing as you asked, I constantly have a tip of the tongue moment with Christopher Walken. I've seen most of his films, his infamous SNL episode, and perhaps every celebrity imitation of him. But when I talk about him, for whatever reason, I cannot get his name out. Fun fact, of which I'm sure you're aware, he was in The Deer Hunter, which is what I Googled to get his name with, wait for it, John Cazale. Ha! John Cazale, uh, Christian, figured big into our tip of the tongue episode. Oh, is he one that you, one of you have a tip of the tongue? We, we, I mean, if I'd asked you who played Fredo in The Godfather, would you have that name? <clears throat> no, and I'll tell you why. I've never seen The Godfather. What? Yeah. Well. I know. It's stunning. <laughs> I've never seen any of The Godfather films. I'm planning to uh, sometime this year, though. Okay. Well, um, don't let anybody build them up too much for you, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> 
but uh, I think I know who John Cazale is. I know who Yeah, yeah, he was him. in uh, Deer Hunter, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that guy. Yeah, so thanks for writing in, Sophia. Uh, Sophia comments that she's in Rome, and so uh, we appreciate that message, but I had to read back-to-back with this also a message from Parker, who has a strange uh, convergence here with Sophia's comment. So Parker writes in and says, Hey, guys. Uh, also, Parker's referencing the tip of the tongue episode. He says, hey, guys, super interesting episode. As always, you asked what were the words that always tripped us up for myself? I had many years where I'd ceaselessly confuse Paul Giamatti, Steve Buscemi and Christopher Walken. Huh. Uh, it's likely that they all have somewhat sad faces. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically that Giamatti and Bashimi have Italian last names, while Bashimi and Walken look somewhat similar in their character acting, a bit scrawny and pale. It's interesting as a Venn diagram. However, because the subsets of two would always be confused, but never all three, i.e., uh, Giamatti and Bashimi interchangeable. Bashimi and Walken were interchangeable, but I would never confuse Giamatti and Walken. Okay. Uh, this aspect is surely an extra phenomenon of its own, but it seems as if it came into play as well. Do you think the same part of the brain would be affected when confusing people and trying to recollect people slash words? Thanks for everything. Always entertained as I listen to you guys whilst crunching numbers at my business management job. Have a great day. Uh, thank you for the message. And I think that's an interesting question. I do pretty much think it's it's going to be the same part of the brain. I, I am not a neurologist or a psychologist or an expert on speech production. So that is my, my layperson's opinion as somebody who's read about this. But from what I've read, I think, yeah, uh, that th- we use sort of most of the same gear in our brains to come up with proper names that we do to come up with words where in either case, you know, the semantic meaning you're either thinking about the person or you're thinking about the definition of the word, but you just can't come up with the sounds your mouth is supposed to make. Yeah. So spoilers for our our listeners, actually, this happens to us in the studio quite often (laughs) and we just edit it out where it'll be me going, Oh, uh, that, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 yeah, and then we uh, look uh, it up uh, or we think yeah, about we, it. We, yeah, yeah. And then our producer, Noel, thankfully edits it out so we sound, uh, you know. But we do the right thing <laughs> as we, as we brought up in the episode. The best thing you can do is solve that problem more or less on your own as yeah. quickly as possible. Yeah. So, that otherwise that, that the part of the brain dies. <laughs> The Paul Giamatti part of your yeah. brain. Yeah. Don't sit in that tip of the tongue state forever. It's not That's interesting to think of Steve Buscemi as being like the sort of center of this uh, universe of, of character actors that are easy to confuse with one another. I, yeah. I would never be confused about Steve Buscemi. Like his yeah. name. I look at people who aren't Steve Buscemi and I think Steve Buscemi. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from uh, Jonathan in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Says, quote, in the show, you mentioned the French version of the phrase, uh, which translates to hole in the head. However, I think you may have taken the phrase too literally uh, from your banter on the show. It sounds like you interpreted the phrase as being like a hole through the skull and granted give a uh, trepanation style. And since we've covered trepanation on the show, we kind of can't help but do that. But yeah, continue. we just have a predisposition to talk about holes in the skull. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's another said, topic that the show keeps. Yeah, around. indeed. Well, it's kind of in the title of the show, right? Stuff to blow your mind. How yep. are you going to blow the mind if not creating a hole in it? Speaking of Tot, what's the guy? We've talked about him on the show before. The famous guy with the rod through the head. Oh, oh Phineas uh, Gage. Phineas yeah, Gage, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, anyway, Jonathan continues, however, I interpret it as a meaning uh, more of a void or space in which the name or idea should exist but is missing. That makes the phrase more like the descriptions earlier in the episode where you quoted descriptions of the feeling as being similar to have uh, having the, the shape for the idea in your head and nothing else would quite fit there. But the idea itself is missing and can't be grasped. That interpretation makes the French version of the phrase perhaps the most accurate. Thanks again for a great podcast. I think it makes it, I like this, it makes it yeah. sound like there's a black hole in the mind. Yeah, I think, Jonathan, it sounds like you're exactly right. I bet you are interpreting this right and we were interpreting it wrong. Uh, the, the, the hole in the head is like the, what you're referencing is when we talked about William James. You know, William mm-hmm. James sort of has this idea of the wraith, the wraith of the name. It's this mold where the name should be and nothing else will fit in the mold except the name, but you can't come up with the name. Right. Yeah, that's scary, actually. The thought about the black hole in your head <laughs> and it getting larger. Larger the longer you spend thinking about it. It always starts with Steve Buscemi. Okay, one more about the tip of the tongue episode before we move on. We heard from our listener Tyler who said, hello there. I frequently experience taught moments as a bilingual. And this is something that actually comes up in the mm-hmm. literature is uh, bilingualism and tots. Uh, Tyler writes, often I experience the problem of having the correct word, but not in the correct language. This happens more frequently in times when I've uh, when I have to switch back and forth from Spanish to English. I enjoyed the explanation on knowing the starting point and the ending, but not being able to make the connection. I've personally felt that it's caused by modes sometimes. When I'm in a Spanish mode, it's hard to get out of it. Uh, similarly, I experience it when talking on different subjects. I might be in a movie mode, and then the conversation goes to music, but the connections are still trying for movies. Uh, thanks for the episode. I very much enjoy your explanations of everyday, often overlooked inc- occurrences. Que dado, uh, Tyler. And so I, I think that's an interesting insight. Like the the different modes, like mm-hmm. you're, you're almost uh, in one warehouse in your brain looking for product codes to locate the correct items on the shelves. And if you yeah. quickly transition to a different warehouse part of your brain, uh, that, that it might be harder to locate the things you're looking for. I can see how that would be true. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Okay, here's two that are about the same thing, and it's something that came up in our episode on Cargo Cults and Richard Feynman. Uh, the first comes from Carson, and he says, Just listening to the Cargo Cult episode, I laughed at the part about the reflexology student and then realized what was probably going on. I'm not going to call it mumbo-jumbo because someone near and dear to me practices it, <laughs> but I am also not ready to deny the placebo effect. Well, I'll, I'll just say that... I think that we should do an episode on reflexology, so I don't think it's mumbo-jumbo either. But anyway, the theory is that your body has energy fields that are all connected all across the body, and using this knowledge, you can massage a specific pressure point on the foot and have an effect on the pituitary. So the student probably didn't think the pituitary was actually in the foot. He probably just meant he was on the pressure point. However, I wasn't personally there in that hot tub, so I can't say for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that clarification, Carson. Yeah, and then we received another message uh, from Jonathan. Similar thing. He says, uh, wonderful podcast on cargo cults, but I have one comment that's not for you, but for Richard Feynman. I don't think Richard Feynman's still alive, is he? No, he's quite dead. Yeah. Uh, I have no desire to validate foot reflexology as a science, but according to its system, there are channels of energy that run through the body. Points of the feet correspond to different organs of the body. So this is the same thing. Uh Uh, And he's basically saying that it's possible that uh, Feynman just took this the wrong way. So to recap from that episode, Feynman, the story goes that Feynman was in a hot tub with some reflexology students. 
and they were kind of like rubbing on each other. And one said, I think that I've got your pituitary and he was rubbing on a girl's foot. And Feynman was like, clearly that's not your pituitary. And he uses that as an example of a cargo cult science and Mm -hmm. that like they didn't really understand science. However, these two messages seem to indicate that the student actually was probably, uh, thinking he was accessing the energy lines connecting to the pituitary. Right. And that Feynman was just being grumpy. <laughs> well, I don't want to be unfair because I haven't read all that much about reflexology, but it, it sounds like it is a reasonable assumption to say massaging somebody's foot is not really affecting the energy lines going to their pituitary. See, I don't know, and that's why I think we should do an episode on it, because I don't know well, I mean, about it. It, it, it sounds like it's based on some kind of... uh non-evidence-based thoughts about, like, spirit energy and stuff. May, uh, well, maybe. I, I always took it to be, like, more like pressure points and things like that, like, similar to acupuncture. But, yeah, maybe we should uh, investigate this and unravel it. Uh, oh, man, if we want to open that can of worms. <laughs> I don't know if you've... you've well, we could start with me rubbing your feet, Joe, and yeah, see what yeah. happens. <laughs> well, we can do some acupuncture and, and see if we get the placebo <laughs> effect. Okay. All right, so next we're going to talk about some emails we got with reference to the episode Robert and I did on hyper-real religions. That was the episode about uh, religions that are founded based on texts or or canons or ideas that the believers in the religion explicitly acknowledge are fictional. There, there's not like a, you know, somebody thinks there's a real spiritual revelation. You're basing it on the Big Lebowski or Star Wars or something right. that you, you know yeah. is not real to begin with. And the way that Robert put it to me later on, was sort of like uh, a cyborgian version of religion in that like you take Mm -hmm. aspects that work for your personal worldview and help to kind of guide you along what you consider to be a sort of righteous path already. Yeah. Uh, So we got a lot of interesting feedback about this episode. And it's true that I I think almost any time we talk about religion, which we do a fair amount on the show, Mm -hmm. uh, we get results sort of from both sides of the yeah. of the issue it seems like if you bring up religion from a you know it, critical or investigatory way of thinking you're you're going to get some feedback you know people are going right. to have some feelings yeah I, I always feel that the approach that we take to religion on the show is let's let's get it out of the box let's look at it let's hold it up to the light mm-hmm. let's see how the how the light uh, goes through it you know treat it like this uh, sort of crystal object uh, and uh, in doing that you have to put yourself sometimes in a state of vulnerable open-mindedness and that's yeah. where that's where i like to put myself and that's where i i I try to invite the listeners to reach that point as well, but that's not always a, a comfortable place. Uh, well, I mean, we hear from a lot of you guys out there who seem to really like this approach, and this is—I I totally agree, Robert. That's exactly the same way I like to come at it—to to to understand it more, to look at it, uh, and not just to be focused on uh, either propping it up as perfect and wonderful and true, or in right. bashing it and tearing it down. But you know, uh, we will hear from people who have. Their feelings stimulated by right. us talking about this. So we wanted to give a sampling of a couple of types of responses we got from the hyper real religions episode. Right. And, uh, and in reading these, uh, and especially in reading, uh, one or two of the, the more uh, critical, uh, bits of listener mail we received, I want to also recognize that sometimes a hostile reaction is sort of like the, the initial reaction to immunization. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of like, like, like I can look back at my own history with religion and there have been times where I go into a situation with a certain set of beliefs those beliefs are challenged mm-hmm. and uh, my initial response is to harden up 
you know, and uh, and say, you know, get away from me. I don't want to think about that. Yeah. It's only later that I'm able to to think about some of these criticisms and incorporate that in and, and emerge ultimately stronger from it. Now, specifically, I think what some listeners were responding to in the hyper real religion episode was us talking about uh, young earth creationism because mm-hmm. we had to explain the origins of the uh, Pastafarianism right. idea, and that that comes out of a criticism of the campaign to teach creationist ideas in American public schools. Okay, so it's a, it's like a Dadaist kind of performance. Yeah, it's a it's basically a parody. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to kick off uh, this and uh, kick this off by reading a listener mail from a listener who wants to remain anonymous. I'm just going to read a segment here, and they were essentially comparing our handling of religion to other How Stuff Works podcast handling of religion. Uh, and to that, I cannot speak because I cannot specifically remember an example uh, of another show handling religion uh, in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know they have, but I don't listen to all the episodes that come out on the other shows. So uh, this individual says, as I listen, listen to your show on hyper-real religions, I discovered that no such mutual respect exists on your part. My faith was blatantly attacked. My belief system was literally mocked, as one of you laughed out loud when mentioning the young earth model of creation. And I was made to feel shamed for being a Christian and a fan of your show at the same time. Please know that I'm not trying to retaliate or speak out of anger or anything like that. I'm not looking for an apology or any sort of acknowledgement at all. I just wanted to let you know that I'm sorry you had to speak this way, and I sincerely hope that you will cease from abusing people for their beliefs in the future. Well, it's certainly not my intention when we talk about religion to abuse anybody for their beliefs and certainly not to make them feel ashamed. I, I just, uh, I just like to think and talk about these ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if, if you are a Christian or somebody of any other faith, please do not feel ashamed listening to the show. I hope you will go on this journey of exploration with us. I also think we should be able to laugh at about just we should be able to laugh at anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, just about that's and, another point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we make jokes about every kind of idea that we talk about on the mm-hmm. show, including yeah. scientific ideas. Uh, and so that certainly if you're if you're especially troubled by uh, making jokes about a certain subject, I guess maybe we we might be able to get to you in that sense. And we're not trying to hurt your feelings. So, like, I wasn't on this episode, but I do just want to chime in and, and back up what you guys are saying in the sense that, like, yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there where you can be listening to things, especially in the podcast world, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, we're not all going to have the exact same beliefs and they're not going to overlap. But like podcasts in particular have like uh, a sort of personal resonance with a lot of people, right? Where they start to feel yeah, like we're they're in, in the your room ears. with us, right? Uh, and like, I'll give you an example from my own life. So like, uh, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. Uh, I like Lewis Black. You guys know Lewis Black, oh, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Lewis Black on one of his albums has this pretty long bit about like how stupid soy milk is. Okay. <laughs> I drink soy milk. I love Lewis Black. I listen to it and I just go, okay. Hold on. Disagree. You drink soy milk? I, do I didn't know you were such a moron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but see, like, you know, uh, I, I, I remember please, the first time out there, please know I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. He, Joe's totally joking. Uh, but, but you know, like that's a sort of like non-religious version of this where it's like, you can hear something like, that and go, well, we don't agree on this particular thing, but I still like this person. I like what they're bringing to me. I'm going to keep up with it, you know, yeah. and I can, and I can also laugh at jokes about soy milk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it comes through at least most of the time that we do take an inquisitive approach to religion on the show. But we also I, I, I tend to think we're fairly friendly and open minded about it. I like to think yeah. so, too, especially knowing you guys, out, you know, outside of the studio as well. Whenever we've talked about religion, you guys are. It's not like you're, uh, 
bemoan or demeaning, uh, and, you know, any particular kind of beliefs. Yeah, and it's not like even within this room, the three of us have a uniformed uh, oh, outlook on totally religion not. or spirituality. Yeah. Like we each have our own system of, uh, we each have our own worldview that has, that may incorporate religion into it uh, to varying degrees. Yeah, I worship the great god Cthulhu, and yeah. and and I'm I'm change. of the cult of Thulsa Doom. We all know. <laughs> no, all right. What is stronger than steel? You don't know, do you? It's, it's flesh. flesh. Yeah, yeah, of course. The flesh really does not hold up well to steel on that movie, <laughs> as I recall. <laughs> That's a good point. The steel really cuts through it. Thulsa Doom's philosophy, it sounds real good until it meets the steel. Yeah. So clar- clarifying for the audience, Thulsa Doom is the James Earl Jones character from the Conan movies. Yes. Right? Yeah, from, yeah. yeah, from Conan yeah. the Barbarian. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, following up, uh, we got one more email we wanted to share. Actually, a couple more, but here's one uh, that we got about the Hyperreal Religions episode. And this is from our listener, Gustavo. So Gustavo says, hi, guys, I really enjoyed the Hyperreal Religion episode. You made some new connections between both official religions and the Hyperreal stuff that I hadn't really considered. The search for meaning means quite a lot to me. My life is more or less built on seeking the deepest truths I can find. The quest never ends. Having read Dune quite a few times, I can relate to the idea of reverence for a story that becomes part of one's being. You didn't quite say that, but I hope I'm reflecting your intention. Yeah, I think think so. so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to believe Dune is literally true for it to start to take on some kind of deep meaning or spiritual significance for you. Uh, anyway, Gustavo continues, maybe I'll memorize the litany against fear to quote it. Now that I know at least one person who, uh, who has done that, that was impressive to me. I wanted to clarify, as I did replying to Gustavo, I have not memorized the litany against fear, though. I think I should. I was reading it off of the screen. And this is and the thing that they read when they put their hand on the box. Is fear is right? the mind killer. Yeah. 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 Okay. The little death that brings total obliteration. Yeah, yeah, totally. I once wrote it on my arm before a job interview. Like, you know, not where it could be seen, but like, (laughs) (laughs) it'd be a good tattoo. Yeah, it would. It would. Uh, Anyway, uh, Gustavo continues. When I was 20, I found Mormonism. Before that, I was Catholic. I searched so many philosophies and religions. Nowadays, I can't say I identify with any particular belief system, but I love systems of evidence along with speculation about what might be. I call myself a non-believer. I don't think the supernatural is real, but I'd like to fly, breathe underwater, and do some other things uh, rather fantastic and deliberately escapist. That would be damn cool. So, I hope there's more. Maybe this is a simulation, and we'll wake up saying, Holy jumping juniper, Batman. That was a trip. What's next? I love that reference. Mm -hmm. Good old Burt Ward as Robin. Uh, Gustavo writes, you were fair, reverent, and kind, considering especially how religious slash spiritual discussions so often devolve into needless, wasteful arguments. Your podcast is informative, and I feel pleased for having listened. Uh, related, one funny thing about the Wicked Problems episode is that explaining wicked problems is somewhat of a wicked problem. Oh, don't mm. we know it? Yeah. <laughs> the, re- the recursion yeah. leads to endless complexity, as with the nature of life, evolution, and the quest for meaning. I hope your day is pleasant, which is a great way to end Thanks, an email. Man. Like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, and so it, I find it kind of funny that we've heard both from people who thought that we were way too harsh about religion, and we heard from multiple people who said that they were very, uh, they appreciated how fair and and polite we were, so I I don't know what to make of that. I think that's a good sign. I think if you hear two uh, extremes, that we're probably doing something right. <laughs> I hope so. But that might just be my own narcissism talking. But thanks for the email, Gustavo. This is uh, it was really great. All right, here's another one. Uh, Chris from uh, San Marcos, California, writes in and says. 
have been listening to your podcast for a while and have never been moved to write in until now. Just wanted to say that I really appreciate Robert's Winamp analogy with regard to religion or religious beliefs. This Perhaps, was about the Winamp skins. Yes. Mm-hmm. He says, Perhaps we are all really just trying to choose the right skin, as the case may be. It was a rich, engaging episode, and I hope that you'll do a follow-up. Perhaps someday I can say that I was listening to the launch of Winampism. And, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and will be able to classify myself as is one of the early Winampists, or is it Win- Winampi? Could it be Win- a bunch of Winampi. competing religions, though, right? There'd be, like, real playerism and stuff like that. <laughs> real That'd be the really bad religion. <laughs> During your <Napsterism>. episode... <laughs> During your episode, an image sprang to mind of the theme in Galaxy Quest and the reverence for the, quote, historical documents. Not sure if this falls under hyper-religion or cargo cult or just an interesting crossover for both. Thank you for helping to keep my brain functioning during a nasty SoCal commute. I think Galaxy Quest is actually a really great point of comparison. Uh, because in, in the movie Galaxy Quest, we meet aliens who have seen old episodes of what's essentially Star Trek. Right. And they've interpreted it as true. Late great Alan Rickman. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then they build this entire way of interacting with the world around the assumption that Star Trek is reality. That sounds like a cargo cult to me, big time. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because instead of it being a technological cargo cult, it, it's, it's like, um, an imagination cargo cult. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, this uh, we didn't have time to read this listener uh, mail, but somebody else wrote into us to say that the scene at the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness is a really good example of cargo cults where oh, they yeah. like violate the Prime Directive and interact with this. Like they let people see the Starship Enterprise on this. I I don't want to say primitive planet, but it's like a planet that doesn't have that technology yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they like isn't it implied that they like worship the Enterprise as a god after that? Yeah, it's yeah. a pre warp drive planet. They see yeah. a they see a starship and they think it's a god. Yeah, that's a, the science fiction's full of great examples like that. Okay, this uh, email comes to us from another person who listened to the Creepy Pasta Two episode, the Jeff the Killer one, and to sort of uh, you know summarize that episode again, like we looked at all the various supposed attributes of uh, Jeff the Killer, one of which was the idea that he cut his own eyelids off. Uh, and we looked at the science of whether that was possible. And this listener writes in, Hey guys, I know I'm late to the game on this one, but I just heard the Creepypasta 2 episode. While listening to it, I immediately thought, this podcast applies to me when you were talking about eyelid reconstruction. I was in a car wreck when I was in, when I was 16. I was in the passenger seat and the car flipped over and slid on its hood. My face went out the sunroof and consequently I lost most of the skin on my forehead down to the skull and the skin on the left side of my face. More specifically, my left cheek and eyebrow eye area. I was fortunate that I didn't lose my eye, but the initial skin grafts used to replace the missing skin twisted and pulled my eye open so I couldn't close, especially when I was asleep. And this is exactly what we talked about in the episode. Mm -hmm. I had to put a greasy ointment in my eye to keep it from drying out for about a year until the scar tissue settled. Okay, wow, we didn't read anything about that kind of stuff. What they ended up doing was taking the skin from behind my ears because it is the closest similarity to eyelid skin thickness and softness. I'm assuming he means for grafts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we all just touched the, the back of the ear at that point. <laughs> yeah. They used the skin from behind both ears for my upper and lower eyelids on my left eye. Fun story. I think he's being sarcastic. The hospital I went to for these procedures was about three hours from where I lived. When I got home from getting the stitches removed from behind my ear, I took my shirt off, not carefully enough, and ripped the incision behind my ear open and had to get back in the car and ride back to the hospital to have my ear restitched. I ended up spending 12 hours in a car that day. Oh. 
I also thought it was interesting when you referenced the paper that said an odyssey. I'm pretty sure the procedure they used to replace the skin on my forehead was fairly experimental, as they had to rotate muscle from the top of my head to my forehead and then cut the skin graft so it kind of looked like a fishing net. Wow. This is fascinating. And yeah. not, this is the kind of stuff you don't get out of the academic literature. You know? Yeah, you only get the, um, not even, it's, you know, sometimes the surgical but it's the yeah. standpoint, but then sometimes it's like one step removed from that, sort of the yeah. academic view of the surgical procedure as opposed to the user experience. He, uh, it, just to follow up on that last fishnet thing, he said the skin then grew together to be full one full piece. I can't even Im- hmm. imagine how that works, but that's fascinating. Plastic uh, surgery, reconstructive surgery, is just so amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, having seen uh, like you know what was done to my own son with his palate, right? Yeah, it's just crazy to just like. They went in there, they closed it, and it became solid flesh again. It's just, it's, it's yeah. a testament to not only a surgical ability, but just the healing ability. Yeah, of the, the flexibility body. of, yeah. yeah, biology. Uh, last bit here, he says, this was just for functionality, not for looks. Over the course of five years, I had 15 surgeries, six of which were skin expander projects to replace the scar tissue on my forehead and cheek with smooth, healthy skin. Not unless you're really paying attention. It looks like I'm missing an eyebrow and have a black eye. I wear glasses so most people don't notice. Happy ending. I have an identical twin brother, and now and then my family members will call me by the wrong name, which always makes me smile. That's awesome, man. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that story with us. Uh, his name's Jason. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. And yeah, again, so like that's, that's amazing. That's the kind of yeah. thing I like to hear about because we do the research and we pull that all together and we try to extrapolate out of that. But like these real life experiences really, I think, add another dimension to it. Hey, so we got a lot of listener feedback on our P versus NP episode, the one Robert and I did about algorithms, complexity theory, and this great unsolved problem in computer science that would be sort of revolutionary. It's what Carney is glowing with right now. Yeah, that's right. So we we don't know yet if he solved it, but I don't know. The the fact that he's just like pooping out harps at an enormous rate does make me think he's entered the computing realm of the gods. They sound great, these harps. I mean, they're perfectly tuned. When they clunk to the floor. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so we got quite a few pieces of feedback, and one of them that I thought we should start with was an email we got from Jim in New Jersey. Now, Jim is the listener out there who inspired us to do the episode. I'd been emailing back and forth with him over uh, a long time, and he sent us some really smart, insightful emails that helped me figure out... uh, some ways to approach the topic on the show. So big thanks to him, but he contacted us after we did it. He said, great job on the P versus NP segment, especially without visuals. I wonder if we'll ever know the answer. What if it's one of Girdle's statements that cannot be proven? This is referencing Kurt Girdle, who we talked about mm-hmm. in the episode with the idea of the incompleteness theorems, the idea that uh, in a self-consistent mathematical system, you can never know the answer to every question. Um, but anyway, Jim continues, you stated that P might not be NP for us mortals, but it could be for the gods. While that argument is completely hypothetical, I don't think that could be the case. If we were to have consistent logical models, then if it's the case for man, it must be the case for the gods as well. However, the gods might have a non-deterministic machine that can solve problems in P time. Keep in mind that NP are still polynomial problems, but only a non-deterministic model. I could see a non-deterministic machine being the realm of the gods and not for man. I like that. Yeah, so he he's saying that you know P versus NP is about logic. It's uh, it's not something that could be different depending on what the you know right. physical facts of the universe were. If it's true here, 
uh, or not true here, the same would hold true in whether it's the any other universe. I just want to throw in on the P versus NP thing because y- you guys are too humble to pat yourselves on the back about this. But not only did we receive a ton of listener mail, uh, some of which we're going to go through now about how great that episode was, but there are a lot of messages that came to us through Facebook and Twitter saying how great that they thought you guys did at exactly what what he just mentions here in particular without using visual reference explaining something like this and that you tackled a computer science topic that most people would shy away from. So I'm giving you guys high fives. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we were a little nervous going into it. Right? Yeah. But uh but yeah, I th- I, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we have to be honest and say neither Robert or I are, you know, we're we're not big computer science and logic guys. We, mm-hmm. So we were a little bit out of our depth, but we we but did our best to make it uh, to understand it and to make it understandable to you. And you know, I found that's actually sometimes that can be an, adv- an advantage. That's been my experience in the past. It's like we're we're the we can be the ones that venture into the woods. Uh, <laughs> Uh, retrieve the mysteries and bring them back and explain them to, to, uh, to everyone else. Well, yeah, we, we don't have the, uh, this is actually a phrase that Jim used in his emails, uh, that, that I was having with him. He, he talked about the curse of knowledge. We don't have the curse of knowledge on this issue, like, uh, knowing it with such depth and complexity of understanding that we lose the ability to, to give the gist of it. Yeah. You ever have yeah. that problem where you know a topic so well you can't explain it in a simple way? This was actually one of the reasons when I as a kid, this is uh, why my parents explained to me that my math teacher was so mean to us, was that like she understood it so well that she didn't know how. I, this was like fifth grade, but uh-huh. <laughs> she she had the curse of knowledge. Yeah. And that she like was so frustrated trying to explain these simple mathematical things to us and that we didn't get it. I've heard that from uh, in, in other disciplines before, like people who are who find themselves uh, given the opportunity to teach a thing that they are yeah. great at. And sometimes they just don't have the patience for it because it's like, you know, breaking down the, the basics and the, the, the introductory material is just ultimately difficult for somebody that's gone too far beyond it. Yeah. If there's anything I learned from grad school, it's that there's a huge difference between an expert in something and somebody who's a great teacher in something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Sometimes they overlap. I don't mean that that they're yeah. mutually exclusive. But. Oh no, this is true. This is true outside the sciences as well. This is true yeah. in like uh, writing and stuff. A lot of people, you, you go to a writing mm-hmm. program or something. You want to go where the famous, really good writer is. That famous, really good writer might not be a very good teacher. Yeah, yeah, um, and even like physical um, uh, crafts as well. I've heard this with uh, professional wrestlers. Actually, I think oh, really? it was uh, the the wrestler Daniel Bryan who. Recently retired, and he is—he's—he's uh, he's known for just being a, a real master of his craft. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of people would think, "Oh, he should train. He can't—you know—he's not going to be an active competitor anymore. He can teach people what he knows." Yeah. But he's—he's he's gone on record as saying, "No, I, I tried it. It's just not for me. I can't—I can't, I can't yeah. deal with the basics." Yeah. Interesting. We can't all be Rocky Balboa and Creed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who would have thought the curse of knowledge would apply to wrestling? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, now, I, I think, Christian, you should read another message, and then maybe we'll get back to a few more P versus NP messages. So this one comes back to the episode, uh, the, sec- the only the second time that Joe and I have uh, done an episode by ourselves without Robert. It was our episode about Wilhelm Reich. Yeah. And uh, uh, this guy says, Hi, hosts. I really enjoyed your Wilhelm Reich episode, which connected some historical dots that I was vaguely aware of but had not really seen together. I'm a, quote, classically trained scientist with a Ph.D. in quantitative ecology, 
uh, and he says that that means lots of probability and statistics, and a master's in hydrology. But I also went to a far-out hippie massage school prior to my graduate training, <laughs> and I'm an amateur uh, herbalist and gardener. This guy sounds fascinating. So I feel like I've seen both sides of the science as dominant worldview divide. I feel like your show did a great job of exploring the myth and mythos that Reich's ideology is so revelant of being neither dismissive uh, and condescending nor credulous. That middle ground seems especially difficult to find in the modern era. I do have one comment slash critique that arose in my mind several times throughout the episode. I felt like you perhaps assigned an excess of rationality to the status quo of the era, both in the legal judicial system and in the medical field. Both are fields where systematic discrimination, profiteering, and all-around human veniality have historically been a rule rather than an exception. From the Dred Scott decision to early 20th century eugenics movements to McCarthyism, the U.S. government has not exactly been a paragon of fairness and equality. Likewise, with the medical profession, in the past 20 years alone, many clear ethical breaches have been driven by profit and countless more ambiguous cases of shoddy science and possible conflicts of interest exist. I find this all so interesting because it's exactly what allows conspiracy theories to take root and flourish. From using Prozac in children to full hysterectomies, the medical field is littered with cases of expensive and invasive interventions being used long before any evidence of the efficacy has been shown. So, when someone claims that all of modern science is flawed, there's an emotionally appealing argument to be made. In many cases, older models of treatment, such as relaxation, including things like prayer, yoga, etc., massage, and herbs are, quote, as good and less harmful than modern medical treatments, for which limited scientific evidence of efficacy exists. One interesting example is cancer, which you discussed at some length. Only recently has quality of life emerged as a valuable metric. Prolonging life has been the historical target, so that an aggressive treatment that had some chance of extending a patient's life by months would be common, even if the quality of those extra months was low. Increasingly, doctors are having conversations with patients to ask their wishes and desired outcomes, which I suppose is something we can all agree is a good thing. From a different perspective, patents absolutely drive drug development, as indicated by the great SSRI medical ghostwriting program in the face of Prozac's patent expiration. That's something that would be great to talk about, actually, on the show. This, in turn, means that unpatentable drugs receive much less scientific scrutiny solely due to funding. So the fact that traditional herbs are rarely studied by modern medicine is a no-brainer. Natural products are difficult or impossible to patent. There's a logical jump from Big Pharma's greedy bag of beep, demonstrably true, to Big Pharma is suppressing the cure to cancer, which is unlikely. Still, it's not hard to see how some middle ground is plausibly true, buying up competitors or even generics in the interest of profit rather than health, for example. There's more to this, but I just want to pause and interject here. Uh, so one thing that we've covered on the show before that's uh, very connected to what he's talking about here is MDMA mm-hmm. and its use in uh, both uh, cancer studies and uh, in treating PTSD. And I just r- did a write-up on it for How Stuff Works Now uh, because uh, the, the group MAPS that has been working on studying therapeutic applications of uh, MDMA for PTSD 
that's a bunch of acronyms for you. <laughs> uh, they just said that they're about five years out from it being uh, legal for therapeutic application. Uh-huh. And that's one of the problems with that, too, is that MDMA doesn't have, uh, I guess, a patent applied to it yeah. anymore, or at least it's expired. And so so there's not a huge amount of money yeah, behind exactly. this the process. The argument goes that that's why pharmaceutical companies... Uh, aren't making a great effort to do similar studies. So you've got a group like MAPS, which is a, a non-profit that's raising millions of dollars through donations to do this kind of study. Hmm. Um, you know, speaking of MDMA, I, I want to just throw out a, a quick uh, a reference to a, a quote from Alexander Shulgin that I ran across oh, uh, yeah? recently. And that was that uh, he was arguing that you could essentially find MDMA in the pyramids. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you will <laughs> not find it in the pyramids. Yeah. But say the ancient Egyptians had it. He apparently uh, said that if you found it in the pyramids, it would still be usable. Like it would hold really? up that kind of like long-term storage. Huh. Yeah, we huh. didn't talk about that, like the longevity of yeah, the uh, chemical kind of bonds. Interesting. Crazy. Yeah, well, Shulgin is fascinating. Uh, so there's two more paragraphs uh, to oh, this letter. Sorry, yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reading it just because th- this guy Christian stuff. It's not me. His name's mm-hmm. also Christian. Uh, it's just really like good. Yeah, like there's uh, a lot to respond I think, to. I think here. he needs to start his own podcast. This is pretty pretty good stuff. All right, he says all of which is to say that it's not hard to see how the 1940s establishment railroaded this particular quack. He's talking about Willem Reich here. Yeah, and how even the quackiest quacks have plenty of good ideas, and the most well-meaning establishment players like judges or doctors will embrace whatever hokum is in vogue. Uh, and the great challenge is teasing out the truth from wishful thinking like Reich, mass hysteria, or greed. To do this requires basic research and a strong educational system, which in turn requires government funding, which in turn has shrunk. So, just like infrastructure, research and education have the potential to greatly increase human well-being, and they're expensive and often poorly supported by prevailing businesses and political interests. In that case, today is not so unlike Reich's time. Thanks again for the intriguing history lesson, Christian. This was a really great email full of a lot of interesting ideas. A lot of it I, I think I can agree with here. Like I, I like the nuance in what he's talking about, saying that um, he it, it's easy for people to have uh, conspiracy theories against, yeah. say, the scientific establishment and say, like, oh, they're trying to shut you down. Um, because the scientific establishment is fallible, even if I, I would yeah. like what I would say is that um, – there's sort of an equivocation issue on the word science between how people use the word science. Like yeah. there's one definition where you'd say it's basically a method or a process like, uh, you know, uh, I, I replied to Christian and I tried to define it like a systematic cognitive toolbox for removing error and bias from observations and forming predictive theories. Sure. And in that meaning, it's kind of unassailable, right? I mean, science is pretty uh, – unambiguously a good thing but then there's also science as you know when the layperson says science they're often talking about some vaguely uh, uh vaguely imagined group of people who are in white lab coats doing things and of course those people are people they're, yeah. they're people like any mm-hmm. other people and they might be doing really good work or they might have selfish motives or whatever. Yeah, and it kind of gets back to cargo cult. Yeah, science. exactly. That's where yeah. I was going with the it. idea that the sort of uh, I love science bumper sticker level uh, of scientific understanding. Exactly. Yeah. That we talk about that in the cargo mm-hmm. cult where episode. science is just this force that makes things better in and, life and is treated in, in a lot of ways by some people like an infallible religion. Yeah. 
Uh, just one other thing that I wanted to say about Christian's message in particular, you know, his, his comment critique was about how we were, we were maybe too nice to the legal judicial system in the medical field at the time. And I, I certainly didn't mean to come across that way. No. And well, if we were being careful, I, it's funny because this is another example of an episode where we received uh, co- listener mail on two sides of it, right? Oh, like, yeah. We we got some Reikians writing in who we did, were not yeah. happy. They, they thought that we were completely unfair. Yeah, and that uh, we hadn't done our research and that we were uh, totally unfair to Reich and that we were were rude about it. So, it's again, this is another one of those moments where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these two different types of messages come in. I, that, that makes me think, like, maybe we did something right. Yeah, if you're pissing off both sides, then. And, uh, he must have hit the right yeah. middle not, ground. Right? Not that I would say that Christian seems pissed off. He's he's got a very rational kind of critique. But mm-hmm. I think that I I thought that w- we were probably being careful during that, just so that we could give Reich like as fair a shake as possible. Well, I mean, you, you don't have to buy into Reichian pseudoscience to say that you know he was probably still mistreated by the government. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is very possible for existing authorities to to unfairly prosecute someone who is in fact a quack. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what Christian's outlining here is like all the ways that, that, that could be possible and still is possible. Okay. It looks like, uh, Carney has, has another P versus NP, uh, listener mail for you to read here, Joe. Oh, wow. And look at this glitter is just dangling, right? It's going everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Heavenly glitter. Okay. Uh, so this is P versus NP, and it's from our listener, Rowan. So Rowan writes in, Hey, I'm Rowan, long-time listener, first-time commenter. Love the show, yada, yada. Anyway, I was listening to your P versus NP episode, and as a biologist starting to dip their toes into computer science, I was fascinated. So it sounds like you are right in the bullseye wow, yeah. of, uh, of this episode, Rowan. Uh, but anyway, Rowan says, you guys broke it down in a way that made it more accessible than all the comp sci resources I've checked out and appreciated how you got into the implications without getting bogged down into the maths. Well, thank you, Rowan. That's very encouraging to hear. Uh, anyway, Rowan goes on. As for the question of whether natural selection is a brute force algorithm, I vote no. Uh, Rowan, and so this is great because he's got experience with both biology and computer science. So Rowan says... I'm going to use the peppered moth evolution during the Industrial Revolution as an example. The peppered moth always had these random light and dark variants, which would have arisen thanks to random mutation like a brute force algorithm. But when the Industrial Revolution came around and everything got covered in gross soot, the ratio shifted drastically towards more black moths because they blended in better. Hmm. They didn't need to wait for baby moths to get random mutations for better camouflage because there was a huge environmental pressure killing off the white moths. If we want to stick with the comp sci analogies, the white moth subroutine gets shut off early before it goes through every possible variation on white moths. You could think of natural natural selection within an individual is a brute force algorithm, but when you zoom out to the population level, it's definitely more sophisticated. That's my take on it anyway. Hmm. Side note, uh, oh, oh, he also asked that we put our email somewhere more prominent on the site for people who don't like to go to uh, social media networks to look well, for it. Well, the site is supposedly going to get redesigned in the next couple of months, so we'll throw yeah, that Yeah, yeah, we can definitely throw that out. Yeah, if, you, if you've been to Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past, if you're a regular uh, visitor, then uh, get excited because yeah. the uh, facelift <laughs> is on the way. But we also try to throw it out at the top and the end of every episode. And, yeah. and, and if you're listening right now and wondering what it is, it's Blow the Mind. At HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah. So thanks a lot for that email, Rowan. I, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, so that w- we were essentially asking, 
you know, whether evolution is in any way optimized or whether it's just brute force. And, and this makes sense. It's sort of optimized by the number, you know, that, uh, that there are natural variations occurring already. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about getting listener mail like this is that kind of example, the moths and the soot and the environmental qualities of it. That's the kind of thing that even for us, like when we're digging through research constantly to try to find something to talk about, are likely to, is likely to get missed. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's fascinating. And it's also one of those things that you won't see in a lot of like pop sci, uh, like magazines or feeds or whatever, because it doesn't have like a sexy headline, right? Yeah. Like soot covered moths evolve, blah blah blah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that's well, not, and it's old news. It's not something that happened yeah, this week, exactly. But that is like a really important uh thing to learn from, and one of the reasons why I love doing this show. Yeah. All right. Here's another uh, little bit on P versus NP, uh, and this one comes to us from Jonathan. Jonathan writes in, great job on making a difficult topic understandable. Taking the issue in a specifically human context, are you open-minded enough for a thought experiment? <laughs> are we? <laughs> <laughs> How about if we postulate the existence of a different form of human intelligence, not digital, we can call intuition. In this thought experiment, we style intuition as operating only conditionally. The specific conditions irrelevant for this purpose. With intuition, it's possible to solve a problem directly without the need to test a number of alternatives. This type of cognition is is not repeatable using our standard scientific method, but it is experienced by many people at different times and apparently has been throughout history. For a possible example, let's, again, for the sake of thought experiment, consider the development of folklore medicine. Willow bark was used by some Native American people as an analgesic and has been proven to contain salicylic acid, the main ingredient in aspirin. For ancient people to experiment with dozens, perhaps hundreds of plant remedies would not only have been time-wasting, but extremely dangerous. In this thought experiment, P equals NP under certain conditions only, and only within the context of human intelligence. Thanks for the podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I don't tend to ascribe intuition any, uh, any spooky significance like that, but that is an interesting, uh, sort of counterfactual to think about. Yeah. Now, I would tend to think that P equals in P or it doesn't, right? That there, there, there can't be conditions where it does and conditions where it doesn't. Either that's the universe we live in or it's not. It's right. sort of like saying, uh, the law of non-contradiction exists in some conditions, but not in others. It, it kind of seems like if A cannot equal not a then there can't be conditions where that's not the case but hmm. i don't know i like this discussion though of intuition ver- uh, in all of this because I, I i seem to remember that um uh e&m banks incorporates this a little bit into one of the early culture novels that the the all-powerful computer ais that run the culture they they keep humans around of course because they're benevolent and they take care of the humans but the and the humans are sometimes involved in operations because humans get bored and want adventures, but also because humans bring something unique to the problem-solving scenario sometimes. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that sort of gets into one of the examples we talked about in the P versus NP episode is, you know, the one of the people writing on this subject, I believe it was Scott Aronson, mm-hmm. said, you know, if we live in a P equals NP universe, then there's nothing all that special about being able to compose the most beautiful symphony on Earth, really, that anybody should have the toolbox to do that yeah. equally. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Like all of the problem solving tasks, all of the mental algorithms that are the most interesting and the most impressive to us 
tend to be mysterious. It's difficult to see how one got from one end to the other, you know. Uh, so when you see somebody have a really novel solution to something, it's often kind of mysterious where that solution came from. Oh, wait, well, I hope I hate to interrupt you, Joe, but Carney is coming at us again, and he has one last piece of listener mail there for us. Okay, I'm going to read this one, uh, and it is this is right up our alley. <laughs> It's from Daniel, and he says, Hey there, I have a kind of interesting use for wicked problems that might not make it on the show, but you might just find it interesting. Oh, Daniel, it's going to make it on the show, all right. (laughs) I run tabletop role-playing games with my friends, like Dungeons & Dragons, where I have to create a story with some kind of theme and objective to overcome. I tend to start with a simple problem that has some kind of emotional component, like, quote, Your king is corrupt. But then I add a layer of difficulty to prevent the players from approaching it traditionally via a wicked problem. Let's say in the same scenario, every other person that would take over for the king if he were to be killed or removed from power is just as corrupt. This way, my players have to think very dynamically about how to approach corruption in government rather than something simple and emotionless like, go get rid of that guy. This is a great example, and yeah. I must say, if I understand the concept of a wicked problem correctly, I think the classic way of of creating a wicked problem here would be to have the notion that absolute power corrupts. So what if yeah. you have a corrupt king, but putting somebody else into that role necessarily corrupts them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like uh, the people who have defined wicked, wicked, prob- wicked problems, <laughs> wicked <laughs> problems over the years would agree. Yeah, that it. Uh, I think it's just sort of like that politics would be a, a wicked problem, right? Yeah. Power yeah. is a wicked problem. And I do yeah. think that yeah, role-playing is uh, role-playing games, it's a great place to explore these because... Oh, man, yeah. yeah more do... more uh, government officials should be playing D&D yeah. to hash out issues, right? Yeah, because you can... Because in a role-playing game, you can do the straight-up combat. You can do the, yeah. you know, the, some, some just sort of basic mystery solving, and that's, that's great. It could be tons of fun. But it is cool when you can put that little... Uh, a uh, little shift on the situation where the players really don't know what the right decision is. If there's absolutely actually actually no right decision to make. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. Uh, and Daniel sounds like the exact kind of DM that I would want to play with. So, mm-hmm. so the reason why we we got really excited about this is, yeah, we're all gaming nerds here. Uh, we love D and D. Robert runs a D and D game. I have in the past. Uh, I love playing them. And, man, it sounds like he would be great to play with. Now, here's a question. What do you think is the highest level of government ever achieved by a D&D player? That's a great Have question. we ever had a, a president who has played D&D? Oh, you know, I want to say uh, there's a guy in Japan that I've read about who's a politician oh. that is definitely a gamer. I don't know if he's in particular a D&D guy, but he's into tabletop role playing. Yeah, but I don't know. That's if really anybody out there knows the answer to this, Vin who's Diesel. our first D and D playing president, president, future president, future Vin president Vin Diesel? Oh man, can you Big imagine the, the social media accounts for uh, for the president of the United States at that point? Yeah, who yeah, knows? Mary, maybe Barry Obama is like secretly like a crazy D and D player. Like every <laughs> every Sunday afternoon, they're rolling up and and playing games. Yeah, but I bet he's annoying to play with. He always plays a lawful good cleric. <laughs> right. That's the thing, right? They'd all be like, oh, I'm lawful good. They'd all roll up lawful good characters. Maybe not Bernie Sanders. <laughs> chaotic, He'd be like a chaotic, chaotic neutral. neutral man. Yeah, well, we would, hey, I, I would love to hear uh, listeners to the show yeah. write in and let us know 
what uh, what each of the candidates would be in terms of their uh, their alignment, their species, and their role and their uh, their character class within a Dungeons and Dragons environment. Now, of course, we know that we're going to get both sides of this too. Now, everybody is going to think since we mentioned presidential candidates. Hopefully, I, I don't think we made any judgments here, but people are going to say, "Oh, you trashed mine." I oh, said they're. I made judgments on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bernie would be a gnome. That's my, oh, my gut on yeah. that. Like know. David the gnome. No, 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 like a, like a, maybe a deep gnome. Oh. I don't know what a, a deep a gnome Sferniflin? is. Yeah, yeah, those, those guys. They're great. We'll educate you on Sferniflin after the, uh, after the recording, Joe. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. Another listener mail episode in the books. Um, as, as we've said before, we didn't have time to get to everything. Uh, we just tried to, to focus in on some of the great uh, correspondence that you guys and gals have been sending in, and we would love to read more of it in the future. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we obviously brought up a lot of ideas here where we asked you for even more listener mail. Keep it coming. Yeah, we uh, love it. And the best way is to hit us up, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and the old-fashioned way, guys. Blow the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.